Good morning. This is Pastor Jeff. Hey, I don't know where you are today. I'm glad that you're listening to the podcast. I'm glad that um, you've connected to us in this way. Um, I want to just take a minute and say welcome. Uh, I hope that you are ready to bring your heart, to bring your mind to the word today. Pastor Cody is going to be leading us through Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 to 8, the recounting here on the plains of Moab of the story of the Passover, um, the the great exodus, uh, the time of Israel's escape from Egypt, and the way that that ties into our whole Christian lives. So thanks for being here. I'm so glad you're listening. Hope we get to hear from you soon. working we've uh okay that's fine um our passage this morning is from deuteronomy 16 1 through 8 observe the month of abib and keep the passover to the lord your god for in the month of abib the lord your god brought you out of egypt by night and you shall offer the passover sacrifice to the lord your god from the flock or the herd, at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day, remain all night until the morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if all of you had the time, and you were able to ask Bob a little bit about, this is of course the reason Bob this morning, I'm not sure if I fully disclosed, I was just checking. But if you're able to ask Bob a little bit about his conversion story, you would notice something maybe a little bit different than at least mine or a a lot of folk. Bob's in a motel, in a motel room in Florida. In his life, is not a believer at that point. I think maybe you had other people in your life who you knew that were, but had not believed that you were reading and doing the material I think that you had set in front of you for the work, for the jobs that you do, and you were wondering at that time, because there was, if I understand correctly, technology was changing so quickly as it does, is there anything fixed or stable? And it was at that moment that Bob heard a voice telling him that if he wanted to find out what was unshakable, but what was a firm foundation and an anchor in this world, he needed to go over to the desk drawer in his motel room and read the book in there. Actually, Bob, as you were telling me this story, 
I thought of one of my favorite people, one of the people I also look up to, including yourself, uh, a man who died a long time ago named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. Um, a man who was also very intellectual, pursued, I think, very deeply the things, found everything unsatisfactory. Um, and he was actually exactly um, our age when this was all going on, Jeff. Um, Jeff and I are only a couple weeks apart. And uh, he went first to hear Ambrose, who was uh, in Milan at the time. He was a bishop. And hear him speak just for the sake of speaking. He just thought he was a good speaker. But one day, uh, when he's out, he hears children singing the song, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And as he recounts in his memoirs, he says, I thought it was a children's game at that point, this song that I'm hearing. But then he realized that it wasn't children singing it. He was hearing the voice of the Lord telling him to pick it up and read the scripture. And he opens to the book of Romans, and he feels, he has his heart filled. He says his heart is flooded with light at that point. And he gets baptized almost to the day, Jeff, that you and I are. He's baptized on that by Ambrose, right? That's a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more climactic than my own story of redemption and salvation itself. And I don't know, maybe some of you in this room have had a moment like Bob had or like Augustine had that you could say in your faith. Maybe it's not even something that's directly correlated to the very presence of God, but some way and somehow in your life, there's this moment where if you were to actually it's left such a deep impression of branding on you that if you really think about it, you can almost be transported back to that place exactly the way that everything looked, what you were hearing at that moment, what you were smelling at that moment, what you felt, what you were thinking at that moment. There is something remarkable in our faith that talks about that kind of that moment, that brief glimpse, that way that you can sense the presence of God in you. But it doesn't exactly begin that way. There's also something very different about the story that we tell together in our faith. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, before there's anything created, God is all in all. But even after God creates, even after God creates the heavens and the earth and everything is there, God is present in all things. God fills all things. All things live and move and have their being in God, correct? Every molecule fiber atom in my body only exists because God is their author, their sustainer, and their redeemer. So much so that the psalmist can even say that there is nowhere that I could go, whether it's to the very middle of the sea, to the very depths of shale, that God has not already there, his hand already not present with me. Our story is a story of God being present, of God's power, of God's majesty, of God's might being each and every place that we are, even before we get there. And yet there are these special moments, right? Bob has that Augustine has, where you feel the very presence of God in and moving and among and with you. And the story that we tell here is not so much that God wasn't present there before, God isn't present there after you feel it, it's God's always present but that there's something about creation that's broken. There's something about creation that's fallen. And, and in that fallenness, it's not so much that God's not any longer present, but that what we've done in our lives, through being misaligned in our purpose, our intention, 
through the loss of the desire to do God's will, through that sense of hope and love that only God can provide, we have covered. And our world has veiled the presence of God so that we can no longer sense it or experience it. We no longer have that perfect communion that Adam and Eve did in the garden when they walked in the cool of the night with God, so to speak, to, to have that sort of immediacy of God's presence with them. And so in those moments, in those moments where we have that wonderful felt sense of God with us and for us, we have a moment where creation is exactly as it was intentioned to be and as God will one day complete it, right? There's almost, if you can imagine, a solar or a lunar eclipse or the planets kind of all coming into alignment. When earth is in alignment with heaven and they're mirroring and reflecting each other exactly, we get this one brief glimpse, here is the glory of God that we were made for, intended, and that we will one day see face to face. It's something, like I said, that you can see in Bob's story or Augustine's story. It's something that you see when Jacob goes and he lays his head on a rock and he sees angels ascending and descending in heaven. It's something that you can see when Joshua and the people of Israel go around the walls of Jericho and they all fall. It's something that you can see when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain and they see him transfigured before them. This is Raphael's transfiguration, which could merit a sermon in itself. But... They see him transfigured before him. And in that moment, they have this vision of the glory of God unfolded, unveiled with the cover removed that we have from our sin, from our fallenness. Now you have to remember that in this story that's being told, God is not in those things specifically. I love the story of Elijah. You remember Elijah when he's fleeing for his life and he goes to Mount Horeb. And when he goes to Mount Horeb, there's the presence of God's going to come by, and you have this gigantic wind that's so powerful, it shakes the rocks off the mountains, but God's not in the wind. And then you have this earthquake, right? And it shakes the whole ground, but God's not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, there's this inferno, this massive blaze, this fire that's happening, but God is not in the fire. And then there's this still quiet voice that speaks to Elijah. And it's reminding us not to pursue God in the senses of on their own sake, in the fire, in the volcano, in the spectacular blinding light in front of us. God can use those things to make himself felt and known, but God does not have to use those things to do that. But when you have a moment, when you have a moment just like Augustine has or Bob has or Jacob has or the disciples have, the tendency is like Peter to kind of want to build tabernacles, to, to want to hold on to, to possess that moment, right? You can get caught up in trying to chase that experience time and time again. I can tell you that the greatest temptation I think that I have as a pastor, probably that I face in my life, I don't want the glory, I don't want fame, I don't want my name, you know, I don't want status, but to be able to reproduce for each and every one of you as you come here on Sunday morning, that felt experience, that awe, that majesty of God, and do that on a weekly basis where you could leave those doors and do that every single time and have that transformation, because I would imagine that, oh, oh, the, oh, the things that could do for God's kingdom, for people to have that felt experience of God being present in and among them. 
course, that's still, well, that desire within me to be able to do that for you is still an idolatry of sorts. It's still a temptation because it's me telling God, God, in order for you to make my ministry worthwhile, I don't want anything, but I do want to be able to see your power and your presence working among your people. And I demand that. It just doesn't work like that, right? Trying to control God's presence, God's power, and God's majesty is like trying to command love. It's the mistake of trying to be God and doing a very bad job at it. And what you realize as you open the scripture is that it's not possible for any one of us to recreate the presence of God. But rather, what we're always being invited into is to this freedom to allow God to be God and for us to become his patient and willing servants. And if we will allow the presence of God as we felt it and experienced it before to help retrain and rewire, retune our hearts and our minds so that we might be able to know, to feel, to sense, to taste, to touch God, not just in those moments, but in every moment of our lives. This is the gift of what we're given and what our passage is about this morning. Pastor Jeff has been taking us through these sermons of Moses. Moses is speaking to God's people at this very, very critical moment. I suppose that we're always, this is kind of always the moment that we're faced with. Israel has ahead of them life and death. They have ahead of them freedom and slavery. They have ahead of them being for and with God and being against God and apart from God. They have this moment where they can either give everything that they have to God or, in the end, have everything taken away anyways. It's that favorite phrase you guys have probably heard me used it before as we've been going through these sermons. That God wants from them nothing more than what Israel is and has to offer God, but he wants from them nothing less than what Israel is and what they have to offer to God. And so in this moment, Moses is trying to help them live their lives as this one singular act of worship and to have worship become every aspect of their life, right? This whole teaching that Moses is giving to Israel is going to allow even the littlest things they do to somehow reveal and unfold that glory again to them that they might know it as well. And maybe the one moment within this law that's kind of recalling perhaps, um, I don't know if there's anything that resonates so deeply in the Old Testament. I mentioned maybe the only other one that I would feel like would be kind of up there, which is creation. You hear all the themes of creation that echo throughout all the books of the Bible and recreation, especially when you get to Isaiah. But maybe the only other one that shows up as much of that is the moment of the exodus from Egypt. As it happens... And it's told and retold again and again, this moment of deliverance. It's kind of this moment par excellence of God's presence, God's power, God's deliverance, and God's salvation. I can tell you this. At many times I've considered what it would have been like to have been there in that moment. If any of you have ever seen the Prince of Egypt, that great... Classic, I forgot, was it Disney that made, I don't know. DreamWorks, okay. Okay, well good, that's why, that's why I'm asking you. This is why you're the right ones to ask. 
But in it, I feel like, well, if you guys just watched it, this is what I was seeing in my head, that as Israel is going through that, this is there are, you can see like an aquarium. Are there fish and things like that swimming? Yeah, yeah, whales are in the Red Sea. Um, oh, well, because I was reading it, I know that there's, God sends a, a, a wind over the, and it splits it. So I don't know if the wind would have been too frothy at the edges or if it still would have been like an aquarium. It's all an artistic rendition. I don't know what it would have been like to be there, but I can tell you that we wouldn't be hearing about it 3,500 years later unless there was a sensed and a felt a presence of God that you could have, uh, you could have easily touched, heard, seen in that moment. Even in the moments just after Israel gets to the other side, as much as we can't today, they can't recreate what just happened and the waters close back over. They can't go to the waters again and say, all right, part for us once again. We want to experience and feel that presence of God. But I can tell you this, Donna, my temptation is always to say, oh, if I could just have Justin and all the people that so deeply need the Lord with me there at the Red Sea at the moment that it's parted. And then, right? And then everybody would know the Lord is God over heavens and earth and to give their whole life to it. Again, of course, the confession here this morning is that God is equally active and is present right now here in this room and working in each of you as God was present in that moment. But to be able to reveal, to show you guys that, it doesn't work on a schedule that I can set or it isn't with a method that I can predict. That's part of the gift of God's presence and God's surprising acts of grace and mercy. But God does give Israel and us this one gift coming out of that moment of redemption and liberation to allow it to be more than just a fading memory with the hope that one day God will do it again. As I mentioned before, kind of this problem that we have is this, not that God is not present with us, but this lack of being able to, to see, to know, to feel God's presence, the cover that we have in our lives due to our sin, due to being corrupted through um, the fallenness that we've all experienced. And while we can't just snap our fingers and say, all right, God, I'm ready, and, and be able to sense and feel that presence in the immediacy with which Jesus does, with which Israel does at the moment that they go and walk through the Red Sea. Because the thing is, is that this love, this joy, this hope that God has filled us and made us for has to take root in every fiber of our being, that we have to be able to continually pray that prayer, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what God is moving us all towards. But as we move in that way, as God continues to perfect, to help us grow in grace and in love, he gives us this gift, the gift of the Passover. Because for Israel and for us, for Israel and for us, let me see, as they are commanded here to observe in the month of Abib, which again would have been kind of in April, and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as they repeat the very actions, as they retell that story, and they have the Seder meal, right, set in front of them, and you have each one of the elements of that meal, it kind of is able to 
take them back on this visual, auditory, gustatory, that's just taste, but, but to engage their senses in the redemption that was felt and sensed and known that night. It frees them and it frees us from trying to manufacture or recreate the presence of God, which of course is always a futile effort anyways. And it allows them to be swept up instead in the same gift that happened on that night as though it were happening to them here and now. On Passover, there's this yearly repeat of that divine rescue. And as it's retold and heard and touched and tasted and seen and felt, as they relive it, it might finally retune their hearts so that they can experience what they truly want and desire and are made for, which is communion, a union with God. Every year on that anniversary, as they sit down to that meal, surrounded by the same cool April night air, with the grain almost coming to full ear as it would have been at that year, they can feel the unrelenting heat of the sun and the aching of their muscles having carried those bricks every day. They can see in their minds the remnants of millions of frog and livestock carcasses. They can trace with their fingers the hailstorm damage left on the Egyptian countryside, hear the weeping in the Egyptian households, and still notice the lingering aftertaste of the unleavened bread on their tongues, feel that same pulse of adrenaline and the pounding of their feet on the royal way out of the city, and taste the salt air as they arrive at the Red Sea, and feel the same shock and awe as they feel the wet, mucky sand between their toes going through the waters that have been parted. And you see, it's in, these, it's in these moments, it's in these moments that Israel, that we, as they're reliving this experience, are, taked, are taken out of all the stories that we tell ourselves. Seeing red, hearing lies, smelling revenge. Right? All the little stories that we tell about the people who have hurt us, who have wronged us, everything that's wrong with the world. The places where I could solve other people's problems. You get taken out of all that and all the senses that just kind of help me recycle those stories and again and again and again and instead are taken into the sensory experience of the known, of the felt, of the presence of God in and among us. For Israel, reliving the experience of the Exodus and the Passover, it's not a means of trying to force God to be present. Okay, God, I'm ready. Now I need you to do this thing. But it's a gift of the presence of God that was there in that moment as Israel was in the parted sea that overflows out of it. And now into every time Israel celebrates the Passover, having that same century-rich experience, to have their senses reconfigured and retuned to a moment, not just to see God in the parting of the seas or when they're parted, but now in each and every sea. To see not only God as they're going through that particular journey on the way out of Egypt, but now every particular journey that they go on. It's to have us and them opened up to receive what the parting of the Red Sea was for, which again is communion, is union, is intimacy with God. 
Of course, the Passover doesn't end with Israel. Jesus, on the night that he was handed over to be suffering, and on the night he was betrayed and handed over to suffering and death, held a Passover meal with his disciples. In a way, we, like Israel, celebrate the Passover, only now it's been transformed with this newer and this fuller meaning that's given by Christ at the meal. But like Passover was given to Israel, God in Christ gives us the Lord's Supper, gives us communion as a gift to celebrate and to remember. Not just the exodus from Egypt, but the very victory over death and sin that Jesus accomplishes accomplishes in his own death and resurrection. And you see, one of the things that's remarkable for us about this Passover meal is because God is not just present or accessible in Jerusalem. And because God is not just present when there's a season that's filled with life, when sort of all the earth is opening itself up to life, namely spring and April, but present throughout all time and in all seasons. This particular Passover meal, this particular celebration, commemoration, can happen at any time that Christ's body is gathered together. Just as with that moment in the Exodus when the waters are parted, God's grace and mercy overflows from that time into all time that that's celebrated. So God's grace and mercy overflows from the time of Christ's death and his resurrection, even up to now as we're gathered here in worship this morning. I wasn't among the 12 apostles when Christ was crucified. And I wasn't among the 12 apostles when he was raised from the dead. But the gift of this table being set here now, the gift of being able to approach it here together, is the gift of being able to remember, to relive to be transported back to that moment in the grace of our Lord being able to give up, surrender, deliver himself over to suffering and death. The confession that I myself have also abandoned and betrayed my Lord for the sake of my own preservation and my own well-being. But also, but also as we come to this table, the very sensed, the very thought, the very felt, the very tasted, the very touched of the reality of Christ having having victory, having conquered, having vanquished death, of God having been able to accomplish even the worst that the world could do to Christ, that it could do to us, that it could do to itself, could not stop the grace and the mercy of God. Shall we pray as we come to the table together? Lord our God, we are grateful this morning that in giving Israel the Passover, you gave to them the gift of your grace, of your mercy, the sense and the feeling of your presence each and every time they came back to that meal so that they might be able to know you present among and powerful in them in each and every moment of their life. We pray now, Lord, as we come to this, your table, 
to be able to receive that same gift that the apostles themselves, that your disciples did when they felt that abandonment and that betrayal, but yet also that redemption. When you were raised from the tomb, when you declared that moment on that day, that victory, that you have the life that you call us to eternally, to be able to have that same sense of joy, Lord. Might you give it to us now in this time as we come to share in that same table with you, with your apostles, with all of your disciples that you invite us into. Lord, we pray this all in your name. All right, I just wanted to jump in again one more time. You know, I don't, I don't know um, what it was like for you. Sebastian Cody talked about all those things. Um, you know, I could see for myself the times in my life when God had been tangibly present to me. Um, and I was, I was met again at the table this morning by that same reality to be not only here in Sacramento, California, but to also be in an upper room in Jerusalem at the same time, to be with Christ, um, to have him be really and truly present to us in that bread and in that cup. It is a gift to be able to worship. Uh, thank you for sharing this time. I, I want to challenge you um, this week. To find a time, find a place to connect with, to reach out to, um, to engage the body of Christ in a new way. Um, if that is being present with us here on Sunday morning, I would, I would love that. If that's showing up at a Bible study, don't allow um, your presence, uh, your participation in the podcast, your participation from a distance to be the end of the story. Um, I'm so glad that you're able to listen. I'm glad that we're able to provide this. Uh, but I want to encourage you to just push it one step further. So again, thank you for being here. Um, I'm glad to be able to to uh, be in your ears a little bit, even if we weren't able to be together on Sunday morning. Um, grace and peace, uh, blessings be with you this week. Hope we get to see you soon.